Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Criminal Conversation, where we sit down and have a conversation about all things true crime. I am your host, Sarah Woodson, and today we will be discussing the murder of Bianca Raymer in Blyville, Arkansas. This is the one with all the puzzle pieces. If this is your first time listening, go follow us on Facebook. We are currently following the disappearance and murder of Eliza Fletcher, and I'll be covering it soon here on the podcast as soon as there's more details and more confirmation in the case. So if you want to follow a case as live as it can possibly get, go over to our Facebook page at The Criminal Conversation and follow along. The case begins on the 20th of June, 2018 at 10.01 a.m. when an employee with the local gas company going to read a meter at a seemingly abandoned house on Cherry Street in Blaville, Arkansas, discovered the gruesome horrors of a beaten and bloody body decomposing on the side of the house. He was horrified and immediately called 911 to report the body, telling the dispatcher that he couldn't tell the gender and refused to get close enough to check for signs of life. I can't blame him when most people who have never seen a dead body, especially one that is beaten and bloody, it is very traumatizing and startling. Most people back away immediately and don't want to go any closer. Once E911, the United States Emergency Line, dispatched an officer, they were within a few minutes of the property. The first to arrive at the scene was Sergeant Danner. His training took over and he began to asking the man who discovered the body questions before checking to make sure the person he saw was in fact dead. There had been many times a person who is to be thought to be dead was still alive and actually saved later on, so the officer has to check and make sure. He didn't have to get very close to know that the beaten individual was in fact gone. The smell of decomposition permeates your nose, mouth, and usually causes instant stomach churning and vomiting. If anyone listening has been to the state of Arkansas in June, you know the conditions outside are awful. It's very humid, 100 plus degrees outside on most days, and it is very overwhelming heat. So it can speed up the decomposition process as well, which it had. That, along with all the flies and insects that are around, it can do some serious damage to a body that's been exposed to the elements. Sergeant Danner is quick to rule out the gas company employee due to his obvious upset and very shaken demeanor. Sergeant Danner calls in the CID, which is a crime investigations division, to start the investigation and to collect evidence. They quickly observe that this was a known abandoned house for squatters, illegally staying in a home or a building is what we call squatters here for drug use, and for drug dealing alongside of that. The grass is almost waist high in most places in the yard. The boarded up windows, trash everywhere, and doors were left unlocked. The home is quite obviously deteriorating and is used for illegal activity most of the time. They collect little evidence from inside the home, but one piece that would later be used in this case was an orthopedic wrist brace. They continue to process the scene as the coroner was en route. After taking a closer look at the body, they noticed this was a black female, but she was beaten so severely she was unrecognizable. During the initial investigation and examination on scene, the coroner noticed that the woman appeared to have been sexually assaulted, along with an extra odd discovery 
of a solitary piece of a puzzle found stuck to her abdomen. Once they rolled the body over, they found another piece stuck to her hair on the back of her head. There was no signs of puzzle pieces anywhere around. There was no signs inside the abandoned home, and there was no blood spatter in either place as well. So they knew this was likely a dump site for her body. While still processing the scene, officers were approached by a young black male by the name of Jasper Perry, saying his friend that had been staying with him was missing and wanted to know if the body that was found was a woman by the name of Bianca Rayner. By the time the CID officer was notified of someone asking these questions and dropping a name that could potentially be their victim, the man was gone. They wasted no time hunting down an address for Jasper and went straight to his home without wasting any time. Mr. Perry told investigators when he last seen Bianca, she was wearing a pink and black striped dress. She had been gone a few days now. Investigators quickly gathered that their murder victim was likely Bianca Rayner. They inevitably confirmed her identity by her tattoos of her little girl's name on her leg. Due to the severity of beating, she was swollen and unrecognizable, making it too difficult to identify her by sight alone or by a family member looking at her. They quickly brought Jasper in for further questioning, and he can be heard stating he was staying, she was staying with him because she didn't have anywhere else to go. His story wasn't so consistent, and it needed to be for law enforcement not to throw up some huge red flags. With each change of his story, the detectives become more and more suspect of Jasper. Guys, please just tell the truth when you're speaking to law enforcement. They notice every little thing. They record almost all of it. It puts you on their radar as a potential suspect, and that is not where you want to be when you are an innocent bystander in this. This is just not it. They asked for samples of his DNA. They asked him to take a polygraph to rule him out. Here's another thing, guys. Don't take a polygraph. Don't do it. The problem with polygraphs are they are inadmissible in court in the state of Arkansas. They are inconsistent in their results. Medications can skew the results. Lack of remorse or empathy can skew the results. Your stress levels will skew the results. I mean, let's be honest. Who is not nervous and stressed being in a police department being questioned over a woman's murder? I mean, if it were me, I would definitely be stressed out, probably freaking out, and probably having a slight heart attack. I have said it probably a 100,000 times. Don't take the polygraph. It is not admissible. There is no point. It does not help you, and it does not help the police. Get a lawyer. Also get a lawyer. (laughs) But Jasper took it to prove his innocence, because that's what the detectives were telling him it was for. But according to the investigating officer, he failed the polygraph. Jasper was disturbed by the results and in a state of complete panic, and you could tell. The interview turned into an interrogation with officers pushing repetitively for a confession, going as far as to tell Jasper what they believe he did to Bianca. This is a tactic that is often used by investigators when they are interrogating or questioning someone they suspect was involved. Don't let it get this far. Call a lawyer. This is an odd approach when no evidence has been confirmed to link Jasper 
and Bianca other than being the last person to see her alive. After they couldn't get a confession, they released Jasper with him being their number one suspect, but they had no evidence results. And without those results or a confession, it's really hard to charge someone with murder. Detectives then started dissecting the home where Bianca's body was found, including all past calls related to the address and previous tenants and owners. This is a very important step because most offenders of crimes of this nature dump bodies or dispose of evidence at places they are very familiar with. If they can track down previous owners and tenants, it could widen the suspect pool by quite a bit. As the investigating team call listened to 911 calls regarding the address the night before Bianca was found dead, this one in particular stood out to one of the officers and recognized the voice of the caller as a sex offender in the area named Ricky Bassett. And this widens their suspect pool. I can completely relate to this because I can recognize voices and faces all day long. I cannot remember names to save my life. I apologize in advance to all you people. But voices are really easy for me to recognize. Faces, I can remember those like yesterday. But names, not so much. But the officer pulled the name and last reported address of the offender and called him in for questioning. They quickly got answers regarding the wrist brace they found inside the home where Bianca was found. Because Ricky claimed he used to live there but moved not long ago to the house across the street. The biggest question was why was Ricky in that house the night before a body was found in the backyard of the home? It looks very sus. Ricky had previous charges of rape and went to prison for those charges, bumping him to the top of the suspect list. Officers then asked Ricky if he will admit or submit to a polygraph to see if they can use any of the results to pressure a confession out of him. They continued questioning, pushing for a confession, but Ricky maintained his innocence. He is very quiet and calm through most of the interview, not really showing any signs of being nervous or upset. Ricky tells them that he relocated to the home across the street, which wasn't far, and it was behind a local fish market. They decided that's where they next need to go and see if they can get any confirmation on Ricky's whereabouts or that even Ricky lives there. See where he was or if there was any witnesses in the area, since he maintained his innocence. When they get there, there's a new tenant there and Ricky is told to be no longer living there. The man that they run into is acting quite nervous suspicious, and the man's mannerisms just aren't quite right. They ask for his name, and he gives them the name of Dalton Torres, but claims his ID and wallet had been stolen on the way to Blyville, Arkansas. But there's more than one way to look up an individual's identification. So the officer asks for the man's date of birth, and he exclaims it's seven twenty-one ninety-five. The only problem with this is the man appears to be 60. And that date of birth would put him at 23. So officers had a really hard time believing that to be true. But Dalton continued to stick to his story, creating and adding on to that to say even his brother looked the same way and aged drastically. 
Officers asked if they could enter the home, and the man happily obliged, explaining the state of the home was a mess and that things were going to be moved around and cleaned up slowly. But the part that jumped out to the detectives the most was Dalton pointing out scattered puzzle pieces across the floor. He didn't just brush them off or wait for an officer to ask about them. He quite literally pointed them out. They noticed that there's bloodstains on these puzzle pieces that are strewn in a pile. And he said, no, those were just swept from another room. We're still cleaning out. The officer wasted no time asking not-so-real 23-year-old Dalton to come down to the station for more questioning and quickly placed him in handcuffs. While searching his pockets, they quickly located a wallet with what he believed to be fake 23-year-old, 60-year-old-looking Dalton's ID and real information, but Dalton said he was carrying it for a friend. So you're meaning to tell an officer, a person that deals with criminals on a daily basis, that you are carrying another man's wallet, identification, credit cards in your pocket, just holding it for him. (laughs) I, I, along with this officer, had a very hard time believing that. But anyways... The only hitch is the driver's license ID looks identical to the man in handcuffs. The ID was none other than a Harold Bennett, who was actually 43 years old. He tells Harold he needs to know why he lied about who he was and how old he was, and Harold claims that it was because he has eight outstanding warrants out for his arrest. As soon as the detective brings up the body that they had found, he instantly said, nope, nope, that's not me. That, I have nothing to do with that. I wasn't even here. Compulsive lying is definitely not this man's strong suit, to say the least. As he was being searched, Detective Grimes started to point out different things that of interest besides the huge red flag of bloody puzzle pieces in the floor and noticed the house smelled like bleach. There was a big bottle of bleach in the hall and a toothbrush line in the hallway. Right off the hall, they were standing in, you could see a large brown mark on the kitchen floor that was smeared as if someone was trying to clean it up. Side note, when blood dries, it is not a beautiful red color like you see in movies. It is a chocolatey brown color. It looks, ew, to say the least. It's disgusting. They even notice Bennett's pants have bleach spatter at the bottom of them. It was then that the officer decided it would be best to take fake Dalton, probably Harold, down to the station for questioning and find out his real identity and check for these warrants that he claims to have had. Detective Simpkins confirms Harold Bennett's identity with the date of birth not being in 95, but he was in fact born 828 of 74. I mean, lying about one's age is one thing, but knocking 20 years off of your age, um, I think everyone is going to notice, sir. The detective starts preliminary questioning with Harold, who is now taking the lead role of number one suspect in this case. Due to the surmounting evidence they've seen literally all around this man, and then they find out his history of being a level four sex offender. I mean... Do you guys need me to repeat that for those who are not paying attention? Level four, level four sex offender. At this point, 
while he is being taken in and questioning is getting started, Harold's home is being searched and evidence is being collected from literally everywhere in this hellhole. During questioning, he tries to stick to his story of not knowing Bianca, then changes the story to she was just there the day he moved in to the house on Cherry Street to perform sex acts for payment. The detective went on to listen to Harold's ramblings. He went on and on about previous charges and how they were all because someone was trying to screw him and nothing was his fault. It was a continuous pattern that we go on to see throughout this entire case with everything he says. He rambles more than probably anyone else I have met. And I have not met this man, just confirming. But when he was asked to take a polygraph, he immediately said, yes, sure, let's go. See, the thing about a polygraph is it's not admissible in court, as we discussed a second ago, but it's it's inconsistent. It's unreliable. These things are not great. Um, it detects physiological changes in the body, and it's due to psychological stimuli. So whenever a person feels a sense of danger, the automotive system in your body, the nervous system, also called the sympathetic nervous system, gets our body in a flight, fight, or freeze mode. That's when people start to kind of get more agitated and it shows up on a polygraph as being deceitful. Okay. So that's what they're looking for in this polygraph test. They've looked for it in every one of them and every person supposedly has failed their polygraph test in this case. So the test is inaccurate, especially if you're nervous. So Harold Bennett agrees to take one and before they can even start the test, the officer who was administering started to ask basic questions. And Harold starts word vomiting his version of events that led to Bianca's death. That's right. He is confessing before he is even hooked up to any monitors and the test is even administered. They didn't have to administer the test. He starts confessing to killing this beautiful mother too, but plot twist he claims it was self-defense. Self-defense. How, you might ask? Well, this is Harold's version of events. Then we will go over the evidence because evidence doesn't lie like people do. Harold claims he invited Bianca over for sex acts after seeing her outside of the fish market, but couldn't keep an erection due to ED, erectile dysfunction. After they were done, according to him, less than five minutes, he thought that he should be given half the money in return since he couldn't perform. Bianca did not agree, and they start to get into an argument. Bianca grabbed a knife and told him she would stab him if he tried to take the money back, which made him even more mad. He grabbed a metal bar and began hitting her over the head with it. He claims she woke up a number of times after the first initial attack and was repeatedly attacking him with this knife, so he kept beating her with the metal bar each time she woke up until she was dead. He then low-key tells them where to find a stolen gun in the house that he claims is completely unrelated to the case, but he just wants them to, quote, get rid of it for him. 
because that's usually what the police are there for. But what seriously shook me was when they asked him if he would be willing to return to the home to demonstrate what happened and where the weapon was that he used to beat her over the head. This is very odd for a number of reasons. Um, I don't think that I would ever agree to go back to the scene of a crime and act out what happened, especially if I was guilty of performing such crime as killing a young woman. But he is trying desperately to paint a picture of himself being the victim of a crime that he was forced to do. He spends quite some time going step by step through this house, reliving his make-believe version of events. Pointing out the knife he's supposed to have had attack him with and the metal bar he defended himself with. But one quote in particular really stood out to me like a sore thumb. He was beating Bianca over the head with a metal bar. And he looks at her and says, and I quote, I'm trying to be rational and calm with her. I'm trying to calm her down and she won't settle down for nothing. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me. If you are beating me over the head with anything, much less a metal bar, I will not be remaining calm. I don't know of anyone who would. I mean, seriously, come on. But he doesn't stop there. He walks these detectives through every little detail of how he hit her, how many times he hit her, where he hit her, and where in the house they were standing. He then goes on to claim he rolled her body up in a blanket, loading her into a trash can and rolling her across the street and dumping her body behind the abandoned house where she was later found. This story is obviously a load of trash, just like the man telling it, because not only does he lie nonstop throughout this entire event, but none of the evidence lines up. The coroner's report quickly debunked most of this man's tall tale and says the cause of death is three gunshot wounds to the head. They find a charger cord wrapped around her throat. This explanation of his was it must have happened when he rolled her up in the blanket. Makes no sense. And blunt force trauma to her head and parts of her body, along with bleach being dumped all over her. This man is no stranger to the court system in Arkansas. And it is obvious he left out key pieces to ensure he didn't face the death penalty or more harsh charges. He actually has been found guilty of terroristic threatening multiple times, like multiple times, including one for threatening a judge, a judge. These are all felony charges in the state of Arkansas. He has a residential burglary, another felony, theft of property, another felony, rape, which was reduced to second assault charge for a guilty plea, which is another felony. This man was in and out of numerous prisons all over Arkansas and was a registered, but not registering, levels for sex offender. This means he was highly likely to reoffend and was known to be violent. Due to the surmounting evidence, which this man tried to get off by saying it was self-defense, Harold Bennett gets a life sentence plus 15 years for the first-degree murder of Bianca Raymer. This pile of horse manure 
will likely never see the light of day and thank God for it. That is definitely a win for Bianca's family and her two beautiful daughters who she will never see again. Well, that's a wrap, guys, on that horrifying story. After listening to hours of this vile individual talk and even more of reading the transcripts from all of his court appearance, I need a long hot shower. But thank you guys for listening to this week's case. It has been a hard one, and because no woman deserves that kind of fate, I hope he rots. If you have any more suggestions or a case you want to hear covered, we have a link on our Facebook page at The Criminal Conversation. And I will link our socials down below in the show notes. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you get all of our notifications and all the new episodes. And thank you, Philip, the amazing brother-in-law, for suggesting this case. And I hope you guys come back and listen to me invade your earballs once again. I'll see you next week. Bye.